You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Today's focal passage is John 19, starting in verse 17. And I don't know if this is coincidence, but what a sweet passage that Mary makes an appearance and Jesus gets to care for her, his mother. So John 19, starting in verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took took her to his own home. This is God's word. You all can be seated, and the children can be dismissed to their classes. Thanks, Rick. Hey, all, good morning. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning. Just a real quick note. One, if you came here for family dedication, you've never been around here before, we've got you right where we want you. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna preach for endless amounts of time. Uh, Secondly, um, I am, I'm the one that gets to do this more often than not, and, and every week I stand up here and say, hey, I'm one of the elders, and, and I am one of the elders. Um, we have three other elders and one elder candidate, and uh, I'm the one that gets to do this more often than not, and that's been true for the last 13 years, and I hope it's true for the next 25 or 30 years, and I'm okay with that, but this sermon right here is the last sermon that I will preach here until like the third week in August, and some of you are like, what? And some of you are like, yes, that one drives me nuts, right? <clears throat> That's on you. You got to figure that out, but um, you all have been so kind and gracious to me and my family, and uh, I'm taking a 10-week sabbatical this summer, but that kind of butts up against Guatemala, and so after this, uh, I preach and, and take a d- deep breath, um, and honestly, preaching is one of my greatest delights, and it's also the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life, to preach week after week after week, and it does impact a ton of my life. My life is dedicated to caring for and equipping this church family. That's not just a job. That's, that's my life. That's what I get to do, and, and even before that, I get to care for my immediate family and my, my wife and my children. And so thank you for the gift of letting me be present and prioritize my family this summer. And so I'm, I'm really honored. This doesn't come from a place of like, Michael's going to die if he doesn't take a couple months off. It's not like that. It's part of rhythms that we have established around here. And so thanks for the gift. In terms of setting that up, Adam Hanauer, one of the other pastors, he uh, has worked with a team to kind of help 
a sabbatical team to help set us up and work with the other elders. My family met with a, a living room full of people this past week, and uh, they just grilled us for hours um, over pretzels and Rice Krispie treats. And um, now they didn't grill us. They cared for us well. So Adam, thanks for man, your part in that. And, and this isn't my last Sunday with us. It's just the last Sunday that we're going to be here uh, th- that I'm preaching prior to sabbatical, which starts June 3rd. And so Adam will set that up probably at the last Sunday of this month and just tell you a little bit more about where that comes from and why we do that. But I just wanted to say thank you humbly from the bottom of my heart. You all are a gift um, legitimately. So any questions? I'm just kidding. We're not taking questions. You're on your own. <clears throat> Speaking of gifts, man, I remember when my parents bought land when I was a child. I was six-ish years old or five years old, maybe when they, when they bought the land. We lived in a small house in kind of the urban suburbs, and they were moving us to the country. And so the idea of that was like, we don't know what we're getting into, and they thought that looked a certain way, and we didn't know what that looked like. I say we because uh, my brother, he's three years older than me, and so it's just the two of us and my mom and dad. But they bought that land. There was no house on that land, and, and the land was five acres of untamed wild, right? It was, it was wilderness. Uh, it was uh, thistle and overgrown weeds and trees and all kinds of stuff. Um, there was a creek in the backyard, which was awesome. It's beautiful. Um, in the summer of 1987, I was born in 1982, my dad was like, hey, it snowed like 14 inches. He's like, you know what we're doing? We don't have a house yet, but we're going to go buy the kids a four-wheeler. So we went, got a four-wheeler, had lots of fun on that land. Um, so, so there were open fields. Uh, I can skip rocks pretty well. I once skipped a chicken nugget seven times. Like, <laughs> I, can, I can skip rocks pretty well. But it wasn't all, it wasn't all fun. Uh, in fact, the work that, that got us to where we could actually live in a house, it took quite a while. And so my dad, he's really good at like grading land and, and, and moving dirt. And, he, and his kind of ambition is to gain control over the environment, right? And so um, he graded it down to where it's just dirt, like the whole, nearly the whole five acres. And so... Nick, my brother and I, um, we had this, this five acres open field and we had one objective on one evening in particular and it was probably like 107 degrees out. I don't know, that's what it seemed like. Little five or six year old me and, and here's mom and dad saying, hey, here's what we're doing tonight. And I'm like, yes, skipping rocks. You know, what? nope, we were picking up rocks. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, I probably said that, right? I was just a little, that's just the way I was. Um, and so here's what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna to grab a rock, and you're going to put it in this wheelbarrow, and when the wheelbarrow gets full, you're going to move the wheelbarrow, and you're going to dump it into a pile, and we're going to make a pile of rocks over here, and they're not going to be here. And I remember, like, you know, me just, like, haphazardly picking up rocks, and like, no, you, like, walk in a straight line. We're using grids, people. Let's go, you know? And so I'm, like, an archaeologist or whatever. So I'm walking down. I pick up, like, one rock and go put it in the thing, and I could probably have grabbed more than one because they weren't large rocks. I'm talking just little rocks. And so that's what we did. It was pick up a rock and walk over to the wheelbarrow and put it in the wheelbarrow. And when the wheelbarrow's full, you go dump it. And that was pointless. That was silly, right? There was, there was no house. There was no grass. There was no nothing. And my little mind was like, why am I moving rocks? But what I didn't know was that my parents, they had they had bigger things in mind for that space. They had bigger things in mind for me and for my brother. Eventually there would be a house and there would be grass and there would be a a soccer goal and we would spend hundreds if not thousands of hours playing, running, falling, slide tackling in the rain and enjoying that yard with friends for years. They had that in mind. They had little Michael slide tackling his brother and breaking his kneecap in mind when they said, hey, we're picking up rocks tonight, right? They, they had eyes on, on bigger things. And sometimes our eyes, they're not open to the, to the bigger picture of moments. It's a human problem. And today, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely easy with phones and it's easy to just 
go about your whole house or go about your whole day or, or drive from home to work and turns out you like watch 17 TikToks and you're like, how did that happen? That should not happen, just to let you know. But it's just so easy to not be present. It's a human problem, lifetime to lifetime, to, to not be mindful of the bigger picture of what's going on. But I want us to see today just the opposite, that, that no one in this scene that we read about has a clue how big the picture is except for Jesus. He's looking well beyond the moment in a way that no one else possibly could, not even his mother or the disciples that he's been spending years with. They had no idea, not the Romans, not Pilate, not the Jews. None of these people have an idea of the scope of what's happening they have no idea of the story that's unfolding and so what I want us to see today is, is Jesus bore the cross with bigger things in mind right that's that's what that's what we get to see today and we'll look at it in kind of three chunks uh, Jesus bore the cross with sinners in mind let me read this starting in verse 17 this is John 19 starting in verse 17 so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Like if the place is called the place of skull, it's like you don't want to go there. This is, not, this is not a good setup, but it does set the scene for us. And it's almost poetic that there's a sinner to the left of Jesus hanging on the cross, that there's a sinner to the right of him being charged with something, right? And so he's dying a criminal. And whether they knew it or not, there were sinners in front of him, before him, at his feet, in the crowd behind him, uh, uh, flanked by the, by the worst of humanity, power-hungry people, reckless religious people, were, were the kind of the, the, the meeting point of why Jesus is hanging on the cross. And in the center of it all, Jesus, Son of God, only good. And what John says is, there they crucified him. Which is kind of like just this, this blanket statement, like, and, and there, there it happened. We've been navigating John for 51 weeks up to this point. And all of it culminating in this moment, there they crucified him. All of the promise of the Old Testament all of the hope of creation being restored, all the promise of humanity to have a, a way forward together with God, all of it hung in the balance of this moment, Christ on the cross. And it wasn't how anyone drew it up, but it was the way that it had to be. Some of you are familiar with uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we've hit on this before because it's so uh, helpful, but there's this guy's name's Doctor Strange, and he can like go through time and see things and all kinds of stuff or whatever. And there's this moment where you don't need to know the characters, but like the end is near and it's over. And like there's this battle, it's epic, and you got superheroes from all all over the universe, right? Different galaxies, and they're together, and uh, and and things are not looking good because like their enemy that they're going against, he's pretty tough, and he's like just incessantly talking about snapping his fingers and like half the world dies it's crazy <clears throat> and so they see dr strange acting say it with me really strange and he's like doing this thing and they're like what is this guy doing and then he like comes to and he says i went forward in in time to see all the potential outcomes of this battle and they're like awesome and they said how many do we win no they said how many did you see and he said, 14,605-ish. And they said, well, that, great. How many did we win? And he said, one. That's not a lot of hope. But, but we have so much more hope. Because it's not a chance that the Lord is going to win. He's seeing his way through. We hold intention, the providence of God pushing his plan without opposition. None can stand against the Lord. None can stand. No king of the earth, no superhero, uh, no one can stand against him. And so we hold intention, his providence to see all things through, working together perfectly with the free will of, of man participating willfully in his divine plans. There's no way, no how, no plan where humans could save, rescue, restore themselves. Every single one of us are in need of divine help outside of ourselves. We are sinners against 
God. So this cross moment is pretty significant, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever been at the end of your life where like life flashes before your eyes. And we see that in movies and stories. And I know there are people in this room who, who have been held at gunpoint. I know there are people in this room who have been deemed too sick to recover by doctors. I, I know there are people in this room who have had accidents so severe that doctors never gave them a chance to live. I know there are people in this room that have experienced all kinds of things that, that may have brought you to the end, and maybe that's you and maybe it's not. But, but imagine what that's like when all seems lost and your life seems to be coming to an end. And like, you, you're aware that like my number, my number's called, like time is up. I imagine there comes some clarity of priorities. Like if, if all is lost, what do you think about there are many things that we've spent decades worrying about that I'm guessing fade into the background. Like, man, if I could just work a few more hours, that would be awesome. You're probably not thinking that. Probably not thinking, uh, if I just had a few more college degrees or a few more trophies or if I just had a little more time to wax the car, that would be, whew, that would really be great right now. Or if, if uh, the island that in my kitchen was just clean, finally, then I could rest. Is that too personal? I'm sorry. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. If I just had end of life, it's all on the line. If I just had a few more Fortnite wins, man, then I could, I could rest. A little more alcohol, a little more sex, a little more social media posts, a little more f- arguing with strangers on the other side of the world about things that I know that they don't agree with me on. If I just had a little bit more social engagement, with complete strangers, just to pick fights. We're not thinking of any of those things. If I were in pain, I would probably fixate on the pain. If I were being intentionally harmed by others, I'd probably be angry, and I'd probably think, how could you hurt me like this? (laughs) If I had the power, I would overtake them. I imagine I'd be in the moment looking for a way out until there there was no way out, and maybe I'd reflect in that moment on the best parts and the best people of all my days. Jesus has in mind not only all of those things, but his back is ripped to shreds, his body's losing blood, his bones are on display, he's he's naked hanging in public shame, he's bearing the weight of all the sin of all those who call upon his name having never sinned in his life. But also he has in mind those who put him there and those to his left and those to his right. He's even mindful of them and, and I, I think it's pretty clear that he's even mindful of us. In one of the other gospels in, in Luke, he writes something that, that John doesn't include. In Luke chapter 23, he tells us a little something about those two criminals on either side of him. He says this, he says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, which is just so opportunistic. Like he's, he's a thief on the cross and he's like, dude, if you can get down, like just do it. Like once you prove yourself, like, and he's like, and can you get me down too? Like that's just so right, right? But it's a logical thought, like, because if you are who you're saying that you're that you are, then why wouldn't you get down? Why would you do this? And then he goes on, but the other, the guy on the other side of him, he rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? I want you to listen to what he's saying. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Jesus in the center, thief to the left, thief to the right, one guy says, hey, like, if you're who you are, like, get us down. And the other guy says, you've got some nerve. We're here because we're supposed to be here. You know that. You're condemned, and you know you've done what you've done. And, and then he goes on, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving a due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He acknowledges Jesus, that he's being crucified unjustly, 
And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know that dude's story. I don't know your story. But I know that there's nothing that that dude did that could separate him from the love that Jesus was beholding right there on the cross. And that dude, all he did was said, hey, I deserve to be here. Jesus, you don't. And Jesus said, this guy gets it. <laughs> he, didn't, he, didn't go to, he didn't go to seminary. I think Alistair Begg says it. It's like real poetic and beautiful. But, but he's like, you know, you didn't go to seminary. You didn't do all these things. You didn't do all these great things. You didn't live your life generously. You didn't give to the poor. You didn't do all these things. Why are you here? Like, how did you get here? And the guy says, the, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Christ died to save sinners. None are beyond his, his reach. None are beyond his love. None are beyond his arm spread. No one is so bad that this substitute can't pay for the crimes that, that you've committed against God. And so, so we get to em embrace that. Even me? I'm not so bad that his death wouldn't, wouldn't save me? Not, not even you. We get to embrace that, but we don't get to live there. We don't get to continue to be like, man, look how bad I am. We, we don't get to live there, but that's the start. We get to acknowledge that I deserve something that Jesus is taking from me. And if you do that, man, that is a really great foundation of what Jesus says, that, that all of life is that we get to repent and believe. And that means we get to turn and behold. You get to turn from anything that's not Jesus that we live as if it's, it's the, the ultimate thing in life and we get to behold him as the king of all things, certainly the king of our own life. And that repentance, it may not look like you think and it may not dress like you think that it dresses because this guy, he didn't get it all right. He just knew that Jesus was doing something for him that he couldn't do for himself. On the flip, even if you've loved the law your whole life and you kept all the rules, and I know you, right? I know who you are. You're like, oh, yes, I feel seen. I've been keeping the rules since I was a wee lad, right? Even you, you've kept all the rules. There are still parts in you that live as if God is not. And as a sinner, you have earned the wage, death, and hell as home, apart from the Lord, apart from his people, for all time. John left this little interaction out, but the window through Luke's pen, it, it shows us, even as in his end-of-life despair, that he has bigger things on his mind, sinners like those criminals to his left and right, and sinners like you and me. It isn't the nails, but his attention to those sinners that keeps him on the cross. Jesus was so committed to the mission, the eternal mission. This was always the way to save sinners that, that he'd have flung himself on the cross if he had to. He didn't die to save the righteous, as he says, but the unrighteous. And there are so, uh, there may be some of us who are better than others. And you may look to your left or your right or your neighbor and you say, at least I'm not like that guy or at least I'm not her. Like we all do that. But here's the thing. Uh, it's, it's such a slight degree of separation from, from the best humanity has to offer to the worst. You, you can't believe it. I don't know, I, I know there are some people that suffer from colorblindness and so maybe this is lost on you, but like the colorblind test or, or there are tests that say like how accurate is your ability to distinguish color, right? You ever seen any of these? For some of you, like, yeah, I've seen those but they don't work because it's just like 16 squares of the same color. And I would say... You should see a doctor. It's fine. I'm an eye doctor. I would start there. But there's like gradients. And, and some of them, you're like, I'm like, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get all of them. I can see it. And then I get to a point or like it shows a square and another square. And you're like, I can't, I can't find, I can't see the difference. That's the difference between you and, and the worst. Like, I know it doesn't feel that way. But that's, that's what the scriptures paint out about what is inside our hearts that you think it's a huge degree of separation between the best and the worst, 
It's not. And in the degree of separation from, from Christ to the best that humanity has to offer, and maybe you're like, that's me, or maybe it's Mother Teresa or whoever you would put in there, the, the separation from degree is, is on a completely different color wheel. The biggest lie is that we're closer to Christ's righteousness than we are to the righteousness of the Jews that are crucifying him, or Pilate who's too passive to stand up for him, or Judas who betrayed him, or Peter who, who bails on him, or our neighbor. We are far off. And the best thing we can do is acknowledge that in humility and, and look at it dead in the eye and call it what it is. It was the mindfulness of those who deserve the cross but, but wouldn't have to carry it because he was carrying it for him. That's who he has in mind. All scripture points to this, this truth that Christ died for the ungodly, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And man, we make this about lots of other things, but I can't tell you the rest that that gives me just to say that. Say, man, that really is the heartbeat of all of this, that, that Christ died for sinners, and I'm chief among those sinners. He did that because Jesus wasn't just picking up rocks when he hung on the cross, but he's building a yard and a home to live in with his people forever. The second thing we see is that, that Jesus bore the cross with the beginning and the end in mind. Let's read on, verse 19. Pilate also wrote on the inscription... Pilate's the, the Roman governor overseeing the hearings. He wrote on the inscription and he put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now the purpose of this inscription is basically the indictment. He's literally writing uh, to state the crime that was committed so that it might deter others. So if there's a whole crowd of, of people there and they see, hey, this guy did this, then what are you thinking? Like, I don't want to do that, so I won't do that. Like, that's the idea, right? So he says he's the king of the Jews. And if you haven't been tracking with us, that's kind of been a point of, of tension because the Jews keep saying he's not our king. And, and Pilate says, yeah, but he's saying he's your king. And Jesus is like, that's what you're saying I'm saying. And everybody's like, what is anybody saying? So Pilate writes, king of the Jews. And, and in this, we get more of this beginning to end. God is at work. There's a double meaning here. Like, he is the king of the Jews, that's what the accusation was, but also he's, he's the king of the Jews, and he's, he's the king of the universe. He's the king of all kings, and so he, he really is. But I love this. I love the Jews' response. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So all the, the local languages that were prominent, hey, everybody's reading this and they understand. They had Google Translate holding their phones up, and they're like, no, oh, it says king of the Jews. That's what's going on. No matter what language, that's what's happening. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather <laughs> write this. This man said, I am king of the Jews. It's so good. And if you live with somebody who lives by the law and on technicality, you're like, these people are so annoying, I can't take it. <laughs> and the beauty, I am, I'm that one. So I'm self-indicting. I'm self-incriminating here. Don't write king of the Jews. Can you write that he said he was king of the Jews? That's what they say here. And it makes it in the Bible. How cool is that? Uh, and Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. And there's all kinds of power play stuff going on here. What Pilate says, hey, deal with it. I'm in charge here. We read on, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. They were like a rock, paper, scissors for it. Like that's basically what they did. Let's play a little game, a gambling deal, whatever. This was, listen to this. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing 
they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, right? We'll come back to that in a second. Aging is funny. I just turned 41. I could barely get up here on the stage. It's crazy. Um, You go through life learning and taking stuff in. Like from little to now, all the way through, you're taking stuff in. And often the things that you learn are things that you've probably heard before, but you just never got. And, And the way that shows up for me is in statements like this, like, you know, like, you're right, that never occurred to me. I, I just, that never occurred to me before. And whoever I'm talking to is usually like, yeah, I know, that's why I'm telling you. Like, <laughs> but, but it's usually not something I haven't heard before, or I come upon new things, and I say, wow, what a wild world we're living in. Like, and I say this regularly, like, what a time to be alive, because, man, I'm just learning stuff every day. This, this world is crazy, right? Or you might learn it in another way where someone says it like this, and they always say it just like this. Has it ever occurred to you that, right? And then they, they, they let something occur to you that you were not formerly aware of. Has it ever occurred to you that like uh, other people exist on this planet besides you? And you'd be like, well, that's, actually that's never occurred to me. Right, so we're always learning and we're always responding to the things and we go through life learning and taking in information and responding and setting the course until we gain some information and we gain some wisdom. We learn something, something occurs to us and then we respond and we set the course. That's, that's how life works, but here's the thing, and I know we've said this like many times over the years here at the village, but nothing occurs to God. He isn't caught off guard. He doesn't come upon information if God is outside of time and he is if he's outside of space then he is if he's all knowing infinite and wisdom and glory and all the things then then time itself only exists to allow finite creation to experience the unfolding of events in sequence (laughs) if you want to hey, during my sabbatical, we can talk about this because this isn't work. I just love talking about this stuff, right? I know you feel the same way, but I just want you to think about that. If God is outside of time, why do we need a sequence of events? We, we don't. It's, it's all right there and it's all present and there's like complex physics stuff at play in there. But for us, we see things in order, things unfold, but, but here's the thing. Like, it is true. We say, whatever will be, will be, and like, that's more true than you know. But God is the author of all things, and sometimes he leaves breadcrumbs so that we can find our way back to him, so that we can find our way back home after a long journey away. And in some way, that's what some prophecy is like, breadcrumbs pointing to and pointing back to so that we might find him and find our way home. I know the word prophecy to some of you, it's like, oh, this is good. Some of you, it's like, hey, I'm not about, like, okay, then like open the Bible. You should do that. That was too harsh. I'm sorry. It's Mother's Day. I retract that. But you should open the Bible. That's really good. Here's my point. Um, prophets of old, they, they speak truth for, for the building up and, and, and the transformation of God's people for God's glory. And some of it is foretelling, like the future, but most of it is, is forthtelling. It's not all... And so don't get caught up in like, oh, this is just cool. It's like fortune telling. It's not that way. It's always like anchored in in, in a greater purpose. In in scripture, we see prophets of old, sometimes intentionally, but so often they're just part of the story. They don't know that they're doing it, but they're laying breadcrumbs led by the Holy Spirit through the normal of their life. And they, they may accidentally leave them according to the Spirit to validate and to connect dots, sometimes generations apart. And what happens when we see that, and so in, in the last couple chapters, and, and even next week when Pastor Matt preaches, it's the same thing, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he says this, he's such and such a garment so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Why is that? Well, it's affirming that God is mindful and in control of the bigger picture. 
Jesus hangs on the cross and things are going according to perfect, eternal plans. So I say all that to say the Psalms, they were written, they were compiled 500 years prior to zero. So, so in the 5th century BC or BCE, they're compiled, but, but written even 500 or up to 1,000 years prior to that. And we have in them this line I want to read to you. In Psalm 22, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Like that whole chapter is just chocked full of, of messianic prophecies, which is, is prophecies, breadcrumbs, that are pointing to something in the moment they have no idea, or maybe they do, maybe it means something in the short term as well as something in the long term, but we know this is a messianic prophecy because John is telling us, John in the New Testament, he's telling us that, that when this was said, Jesus put on the clothes that he put on today so that this might be fulfilled for this purposes to affirm and to connect the dots. All things are constantly and continually working to carry out the plans of God. There's so much that we don't know about how those things play together. Like there, there's so much. I, I wouldn't even begin to interact. We know what the scripture tells us, but we, we don't know how all these things play together. But, but rest assured, Jesus isn't on the cross looking for a way out. He's not up there smiting his enemies. If anything, he's ensuring that he remains on the cross till death so that he could pay the debt that he came to pay. And it wasn't his debt. It was your debt, and it was my debt. And it was all who for all time, by his grace, through their faith, put their hope and confidence for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God and his people forever in this truth. He has in mind the beginning and the end and everything in between. The, the soldiers, they're not aware that they're participating in internal plans. They're not, they're not aware that they're participating in, in uh, plans that were laid long ago, plans backward and forward, and yet, as if it's sketched in the playbook of redemption, Jesus is divinely aware all the way down to this, the specifically selfish nature of the soldiers and the authorities and the mob. This week in the sermon kind of prep meeting, uh, Scott was talking about... Um, how they use Jesus for personal gain and, and like they're doing scorekeeping and everybody's trying to use Jesus to get something that they want. And Pilate is doing that and the Jews are doing that and, and the thief on the cross, they're all trying to do that. And, and he said, it's crazy to think how much more they care about the garments of Jesus than they do for his own flesh, the son of God. All the characters here, they're accountable to their sin and, and, and all of these involved will pay for their sins unless their sins are paid for by another, the one who's dying right in front of them. And that's true for us. Like, you will pay for your sins against the Lord. And there's, there's hell and death and separation to pay. Or you can put all of your hope and confidence in the one who who laid down his life so that we might find life. It's all working together, all the way down to the fibers and the stitches of clothing that Jesus is wearing when it all goes down. So Jesus may, he may gasp for breath as his body fades and gives up his spirit, but he's not gasping in surprise. He bears the cross with the beginning 
end, the means, and even the wardrobe of every scene in mind. And that doesn't mean that we're, we're robots. We are not robots just carrying out commands. But the complexity of God is that all things are working together towards an end where he is God and his people are his people perfectly forever. And on the cross, he knows how he got there and that by him being there, he's solidifying faith and he's letting the Jews and, and others and even us see that he's connecting dots which validate his claims. He is who he says that he is. He's aware of the result in the end of days that all, that, that every last name who calls upon his name and trusts his grace will be saved, spared, rescued, forgiven, and invited into eternal life, not because we deserve it, but because he earned it for us. So I want to tell you this, if, if Jesus woke up this day grabbing the right tunic to affirm something that the Father and the Son and the Spirit had deemed to happen a thousand years before this, then we can rest assured that he knows what's going on with you today and isn't catching him off guard. And he's working together for his glory and for the good of all who call upon his name. And it might not show up like you think, but you are not alone in the battles that you engage in today. You're not alone. He extends his compassion and his care to you. And that leads us to the last thing. Jesus bore the cross with compassion and care in mind. Look, I'm not preaching for like three months. Well, I'm preaching in Guatemala a couple times, but I'm, if you feel like I'm saying a lot of words, I'm just trying to pack them in. Relax. Jeesh. Better now than later. My goodness. Like, Jesus bore the cross with compassion and care in mind. Little side note. Sermon stuff comes together. On Mother's Day, we usually don't say, hey, we're going to preach like about mothers. We preach like about judgment and dragons and all kinds of stuff. I was encouraged when I saw, like we do, it's like six or eight months out this focal passage is put in place. I thought it was gonna be like a week off or something like that, but when it all came together, I was like, man, that's super sweet um, that we do get to, to look at Mary and, and his relationship, Jesus' relationship with, with her on Mother's Day. It's not... That's all I can give you. How about that? <clears throat> 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. I'll just tell you this. There was a dude named John and like several people named Mary and some other people and one of them was his mom. That's really all that we know. Um, when, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, the guy writing this, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Man, there, there's so much in all of this cultural stuff, care, provision. But, but here's what we know. that Death by crucifixion is one of the most barbaric, torturous humiliating deaths ever conceived. And, and one says, yet Jesus' heart of care and compassion, it shines even in those awful moments when the pain of crucifixion would have driven most into a self-absorbed survival mode. Jesus focuses his attention and his affection to a small group at the foot of his cross, Mary and John, his beloved disciples. Mary knew that Jesus was a big deal, right? She never slept with a man and she got pregnant. And the angel told her, this kid, the, the world is gonna hang on his shoulders. And she believed that. There's this moment in Luke chapter two where just like today is basically a family dedication, right? And the, the rituals were a little different, but they brought Jesus to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. And there's this guy named Simeon, and, and it's in Luke 2, 34. Um, Simeon blessed and said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed 
for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then, and then Luke writes this parenthesis. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary. And then he goes on, he says, so thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so he's saying that like this son of yours, I see big things, right? But he, he says it in the most sincere way, but he tells her like Mary, he's going to bring a piercing through your soul as he's carrying out the things that he's going to do. In this scene, you can imagine that Mary was pierced through the soul. You can imagine that she knows that he's the savior, the one in part. She doesn't know how it all plays together probably. She sees him on the cross and she's thinking, is this the only way? Like, Jesus, I know that you said you were going to do this, but just tell them what they want to hear so that you can get down. Jesus, just, just use your power. We've seen you do it a million times. Just use your power to get down off of there. Stop. Like, you can imagine wincing in tears. But all we know is that she wept. And, and, and she demonstrated certainly a mother's love as she was there with him even to the very end. Rebecca McLaughlin helps us understand this a little bit in her book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. <clears throat> she says this. One bedtime, when my daughter Eliza was five, she put her arms around my neck and she asked, Mommy, it's British, Mommy, would you hold me when I'm dying? And she said, yes, darling. Thank God, it's much more likely She'll hold me in death. Watching your child die is a horrific prospect. I know a reality for many. If, God forbid, she should die first, I hope to hold her in my arms. But even if she dies in old age, when I'm long gone, Eliza may yet call for me. I recently learned that elderly people often cry out for their mothers when they're dying, retreating to a childlike need for comfort. When he was on the point of death, Jesus called out to his mother too, but not so she could care for him. Rather, he cried out to care for her. The disciple whom Jesus loved is John's way of referring to himself. We know that Jesus' half-brother James became a leader in the early church but during his life on earth, his biological siblings did not seem to grasp the gospel and his mission. Perhaps this is why Jesus entrusts his mother to a beloved disciple's care. Mary was the first to know who Jesus is. She cared for him in infancy, but as Mary looks up at her son upon the cross, enduring unimaginable agony, she finds what we will all find if we will lift our eyes to him that Jesus is the one who truly cares for us. Man, two things that I want us to see, that, that he cares for those around him, even when he's on the cross. In duress, he's still mindful of the needs of those around him. Even in the moment, it looks like, Mom, John's your son. John, Mary's your mom. He's mindful that, that they are going to experience a, a real hard day, a real tough week ahead of both of them, and they get it. They get that all this is seated in some greater reality, but they can help care for one another in the thick of it. And surely as he reigns at the right hand of God, even right now, he's mindful of you, and he has even filled this room, and many like it around the world with disciples who get to be disciples who walk with compassion and care, that are mindful in the moments of difficulty, that, that we too get to care for others and help one another continue to follow Jesus in the good and in the bad. And the second thing we see is this. He cares for those beyond him. He's, he's mindful of more than just this day. He's mindful of, of his mom as she ages and has certain needs and, and, and wants to make sure that she's 
cared for, which is very culturally appropriate in that context. He cares for those beyond. Here's the sweet thing about me picking up rocks when I was six years old is that now my kids, they play in the same yard. I didn't know that. My parents would have hoped that. But all the things that we get to do, they're, they're, they're beyond. He, he never loses focus of what's happening after he leaves. And in the moment, again, it's John, Mary, Mary, John, take care of each other. But beyond the moment, he's already revealed the same for all of his disciples. He said this earlier on, it's better that I go, that I can send you the Holy Spirit who will be present, who will equip you, who will care for you, who will guide you in truth, pointing to me until I return. Man, here's the thing. They may not have known, and, and people may, may ask around why he's doing what he's doing, but, but because Jesus was doing more than just picking up rocks, he's advancing the mission of God in every breath, in every moment, in every thought, in every action. Because he did that, we too get to adjust our perspective, recalibrate our hearts, look beyond the moment, but also be present in the moments, and we get to let our actions flow from the reality that everything we do gets to be just that, picking up rocks, going to work, resting, dreaming, mowing grass, paying bills, and as disciples, we get to do things like read the Bible and fast and pray and share and invite. We get to do all those things because there are those things, but, but every one of those things is something bigger. Every single thing you do gets to be anchored in this reality that Jesus bore the cross with bigger things in mind. The band can come on up. My guess is that, that Mary and John left this scene and they probably went and shared a meal. They shared a meal without Jesus so that, so that we could share a meal with him. And as we respond every week as we do, we're invited to take communion. We get to remember and declare the work that Jesus did on our behalf we get to do that. He said, as often as you do, take of the bread, take of the juice, and, and let it remind you of my body that was broken and my blood that was spilled. And what this does, it, it gives us uh, an opportunity to remember that we have a seat at the table. This is for those who are in Christ. If you come to the place, the end of your life, and you trust Jesus to give you eternal life and peace with God, Man, this is for you. Reflect and repent and respond in, in beautiful ways, but, but let this be an encouragement to you. If you're not in Christ, this is not for you, but we are for you. And you can respond any way. You can sit down right where you are. You can stand up and sing with this great band. I'm assuming they'll do just fine on the back end of this. You can pray over there by that prayer bench if you just want some time to yourself. And there will be some people back by that red tree that would love to pray with you. Would you pray with me now? God, thank you for this room, for this passage, for this day that, that you have made. Would you let it challenge and shape us? Would you let it encourage and build us up? God, what a gift. We love you and we need you. Would you let us know that you are present, that you are mindful of all things, and you meet us where we are in Jesus' name, amen.